Today we embarked on a journey together. And we're so glad that you've come back today to continue with us. If you weren't here last night, I shared with you my own Valentine's story. How I met my wife as a kind of a modern day parable about the real virtuous Valentine, Jesus Christ, who loves us so much. Before we get into our second of our series, I want to ask you to pray with me very briefly. Holy Father, we pause for a moment in your presence, recognizing our desperate need. Bless us now here, Lord, as we spend these few moments in the written word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I'll never forget the day I was in South Africa. I was visiting a university there, and one of the secretaries must have overheard something I said, and she came to me all excited. She said, you've got to get this new book. This is towards the end of the 1990s. She said, it's fascinating. It foretells the future in an incredible way. And so she did it with so much enthusiasm, I went and bought the book. And I began to read the book. I remember flying at 30,000 feet and reading and reading page after page. Fascinating information. You see, this author, a secular Jew, by the way, came up with something that he says, if you put all the letters of the Hebrew Old Testament, at least the Torah, together, and you have it all letter after letter after letter in a huge, giant word search pattern, and then you ask the computer to find certain things, it will find for you things such as that Rabin, Yitzhak Rabin in Israel was going to be assassinated. He maintains that in the book of Genesis, you can find the fact that Lady Diana, her death would be caused by a photographer. Fascinating. Christians got all excited about this thing. Books were also written. In fact, some movies came up out. I even purchased one called The Omega Code. Interesting things that came out in the late 1990s. But you know what? Very interestingly, a Hebrew scholar by the name of Dr. James D. Price decided to really check this out. So he took other words and he put them into this computer program. Words such as, and I'm quoting now, he put this in to see, does the Bible code also reveal the following? Jehovah is a liar. Hmm. What happened? It showed up eight times. Next one, Jehovah is dead. 23 times. There is no Jehovah. Dozens of times. He put in the term, Satan is Jehovah, and Satan is God, and that showed up too in the so-called Bible codes. Which is very interesting. Because apparently, you can put whatever you want to in, and the computer will find it at these equidistant letter sequencing. In fact, I have a cartoon that helps to describe this process. Don't bother me. I'm looking for a verse of scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions. Okay? That's the danger we all face. We look at the scriptures and we look for things to support what we already believe. And as I went through the book, it was about the second last page of the book, I came across this one statement that just jumped out at me. Let me read it to you by Michael Drosnan himself in his book called The Bible Code. This is what Michael Drosnan says in about 10 or 15 words. He says, the message of the Bible Code is that we can save ourselves. Aha! Uh -huh. 
So now you see. You compare that with Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Peter says clearly, categorically, we cannot be saved except through Jesus Christ. Interesting. So what is this Bible code? How do we understand the scriptures? In fact, this evening, communicating in code, the secret of the scrolls is my topic. We're glad you've joined us because I want to talk a little bit about about the Bible, why God gave it to us, and how to understand it. Now let's suppose for a moment you're here at Loma Linda University finishing up this year and as soon as you graduate, you have a job offer working for one of the top American health corporations. A couple of hundred miles away, let's say. And so you get in your vehicle and you start driving in that direction. But you don't really know where it is. So you stop and you ask somebody for directions and they say, uh-oh, you're going the wrong way. You've got to go east on I-10. And you drive another 30 miles and you stop again and you ask somebody. They said, oh, sorry, you've got to go west 40 miles. And you say, wait a minute. Well, you, now you start going the other way. You say, Maybe that first guy was wrong. And after going 40 miles west, you stop and you ask somebody else. And he says, oh no, you've got to go north on I-10. And now you know there's problems, okay? Because it runs east and west. So what do you do? You stop at the nearest gas station. And you go and you ask for directions. And the guy says, hold on, I'll get a map for you. And he takes out the map and he shows you. He says, here you are. And he says, you're right. I've gone that way. I've gone this way. This guy says, I must go this way. Where do I go from here? And the gas attendant is very helpful. And he gives you exactly where you need to go. You hop in the car. You hurry on within the speed limit. And you get there just in time for your appointment. And you get the job. Folks, to some degree, the Bible is a road map for life. Turn with me to one of the best known passages, if you have your Bibles, to look at that passage here. It's in the book of Psalms, that book right in the middle, the chapter that's virtually in the middle of the Bible, the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I want to go to verse 105. Psalm 119. 105. And I'm reading from the New King James Version here. The NKJV. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your, lamp, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Incidentally, I brought along a flashlight with me that my sister-in-law got for me for a Christmas present. It is so bright you can see it two miles away. It is so bright I don't want to shine it in your eyes. It is incredible. It blinds you. Okay? Now, the Bible doesn't blind you, no. The Bible provides a a light so you can see where you should be going. Besides being a, a, a light or a lamp, the Bible also is called other things. But why is the Bible there? I would like to propose that the Bible has the answers to some of the most significant questions that you or I can ever ask. And if you read it, you'll find those answers. Now, it might not come right away, but significant questions have been asked. For example, how can I have peace of mind? How can I find the solution to stress, the ultimate solution? How can I be the person I want to be? How can I be certain of eternal life? What happens five minutes after death? And of course, are we living in the last days And perhaps more so in the context of a medical institution, the question always will come up, if God is good, why is there so much suffering on planet earth? The Bible is a roadmap that will help you to get to your destination safely and on time. But besides being a roadmap, 
I would like to suggest that the Bible is also a love letter. Now, yesterday was Valentine's Day, and I talked about Valentine's Day a little bit, shared with you. But, you know, I didn't tell you this part. There was a time when I was hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away from my beloved. I sent a letter kind of every week, but I decided to write a long letter. And so I wrote 10 pages, 20 pages, 30 pages, 60 pages, 80 pages, 100 pages, 120 pages. And when I was done, I sent the letter, you might call it a book. I sent it along. And when my beloved got it, what do you think I expected her to do? Set it on the shelf? Ignore it? No, to read it, hopefully several times. In a certain sense, I would like to say that the, the Bible is God's love letter to you and to me. Because God wants us to get to know Him. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, because here that concept of getting to know God comes through quite clearly. Jeremiah chapter 9, just briefly, I want to point out something very interesting, the language here, Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24, where God says, Thus says the Lord, this is, Jeremiah writing, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this what? That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. I want you to back up to one critical word there. That he understands and knows me. Fascinating word. You know, the Hebrews use that word yada, not just to get to know somebody, but they use that also, if you remember, back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, And Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bare a son. What does that mean? In a sense, the word yada, to know, is a code word for a close, intimate personal relationship. And so here, when God says, I want you to understand and to know me, what is God saying? I want you to have a close, personal, intimate relationship with me. How do we do that? How can we do that? Turning to, in, to the New Testament now, a very well-known passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to share that verse because I did some study, some graduate study some years ago in the area of the practice. How then should we live? I did some study in ethics, as it's called. And when we go here to how then should we live? What does the Bible teach us how to live? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, what is it for? And is profitable for, notice the following, for doctrine. The New International Version says, useful for teaching. The next thing, for reproof. Oh, how many of us love reproof? We don't, right? For reproof. I love the way the New Living Translation says, to, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. That's for reproof. Then it continues, for correction and instruction in righteousness. Or in contemporary language, the Bible straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. Very practical. The Bible will help us to know how to live the best way possible. 
Now I know how many of us enjoy reproof. Let me see. Who loves to be corrected? I don't see a hand. Oh well. <laughs> one joker in the back. Okay. <laughs> There's always one in the crowd. <laughs> but you know, we don't like being corrected. But you know what? It's a fact. Unless people correct us, let's say the, the, the person, the gas, the gas attendant, right? Who said, you're in the wrong place. Here's the map. That's the way to go. If that gas attendant didn't help that person in our story at the beginning, that person would not get the job. It's great to be corrected, even though we hate to be corrected. That's what the Bible is for. Now the Bible, it says here, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says it a different way. So turn there. It's reiterated in the second letter of Peter. Put in a different way, but it's explained a little more clearly. Using the word prophecy, that really includes all of Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy, or the prophetic word, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, they didn't just speak if they only spoke, we wouldn't have had the Word of God. They spoke it, they wrote it. Holy men of God wrote the Word of God so that we would have it right here today. But the question is, how should we understand it? How should we interpret it? Because here we've had this issue of the Bible codes and people coming up with all kinds of interesting things, saying that there are encoded letters there, predicting all kinds of interesting things. How should we properly interpret the scripture? In fact, just the verse before, there's a warning. The verse right before that, verse 20, there's a caution. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. The New Revised Standard Version says of one's own interpretation. The New American Bible, of a matter of personal interpretation. So here's the caution. Be careful, like that first slide we showed you here on the screen, which warned you, don't simply look for something to back up one of your preconceived notions. That's the danger. We always want stuff to support what we already believe, so we can feel secure. Where and how do we find out what is the best way? Who do you think would be the best example, the best person to teach us how to properly interpret the Word of God? Which individual who lived on planet Earth would be the best interpreter? Jesus, you're right. So let's go to that passage. Luke chapter 24. As you go there, let me give you a little bit of the background. Luke chapter 24. You'll remember there were a couple of disciples of Jesus. These were not part of the twelve apostles, but there were two men on their way from Jerusalem, walking back down to Emmaus, about seven miles away. And as they walked, probably a two-hour, maybe a three-hour journey, the Bible says they were downcast. And they walked together and they talked about what had happened. And then suddenly a stranger came and joined them. They didn't recognize who he was. And this person says, said, what are you talking about, gentlemen? And Cleopas turned to him and said, what do you mean? You, you, have you not heard what happened here in Jerusalem this weekend? This was Sunday, Sunday afternoon, apparently. And so Cleopas starts telling him and starts explaining, we had hoped that this Jesus of Nazareth was the one who was going to redeem us from the Romans. The Israelites, the Jewish nation was under Roman occupation back then. Now notice what this stranger does. We know it's Jesus. Go to verse seven, uh, verse 27, because here is the key. Now, if you have a pencil or a, or a pen, 
I would like to bring out seven lessons from one verse. Jesus' methods, incredible methods that come right here from this verse. It begins a little bit beforehand because I would like to suggest that the first step was what these two disciples didn't even realize they were doing. They turned to Jesus without realizing it was Him and told Him their problems. So the first step, the very first step is Christ-dependent. If you've got a problem, if you are despondent, discouraged, disappointed, downhearted, downcast, turn to Jesus. Make sure you are Christ-dependent. Turn to Him. Ask Him for help. Let Him know what your burdens are. Ask Him to help you to understand the Holy Word. That's what really they were unintentionally asking. They didn't understand about this Jesus of Nazareth, the great prophet. So the first thing, it was Christ-dependent. Now notice what he does. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Fascinating. That one verse is packed with incredible information. If you want to know how to study your Bible, I want you to write these seven things down. The first thing was Christ-dependent. Before you Try to understand the word. Turn to the Lord and ask Him to help you to understand it. Christ-dependent. Now, what does Jesus do? It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. I would like to suggest step number two, chronological. Very important to study the scriptures from beginning to end. I'll give you an example why it's important to do that. Because sometimes we take one statement out of context and it can confuse the whole thing. While I was at Andrews University, I was still planning to go to Africa, and I did go to Africa as a missionary. But while I was there, I had the privilege of studying. I decided to do for my dissertation the rather controversial yet captivating subject of polygamy in the Bible. Now, I was on my way to Africa, and in Africa, that is still a current issue, a current concern, a current problem. And so as I was studying, I came across certain people who had written about the issue of polygamy, and they said, isn't it interesting? Polygamy must be okay, because here we have David, a man after God's own heart, and at the same time, David was a man after a lot of women's hearts as well. Yes, David was one who pleased God, yet David was a polygamous man. How do you understand that? Fascinating. As I studied, I found something very interesting. If you study the life of David chronologically, guess what? The only time when that statement is made about David, that he was a man after God's own heart, was guess when? When he was a single, saintly shepherd. It was never mentioned about David when he slipped away, when he fell, when he sinned, such as murder, adultery, polygamy, lies, all kinds of Things that David did. He was never called a man after God's own heart. So number two is chronological. What was number one? Christ-dependent. Number two, chronological. That's what Jesus did. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Okay? Now it says he, that's Christ-dependent. He, what did he do? He expounded. Very interesting word. Some Bibles say he interpreted. He explained. Ah, what did Jesus do? He was very, very careful. Careful. The word here, the original Greek word is from hermenuo, 
which is hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. And this is what Jesus did. He expounded, he explained. So Jesus went ahead and did it very carefully. It is important as you study the scriptures to do that carefully. Be careful, be very careful about proof texting. You know what proof texting is? Taking one text from here, one text from there, out of their proper context and stringing them together as that old joke you've heard about it, the guy who opened his Bible and and he said, I want to find guidance for my life today. And he found a text that said, and Judas went out and hanged himself. He said, oh no, that's not the text I want for today. And the next one said, go and do thou likewise. Oh no. And he closed his Bible and he looked at another one and it says, what thou doest, do quickly. Careful of this dangerous proof texting. Step number three, Jesus expounded to them. Which means he was careful in his study of scripture. Look at the fourth point. So, beginning at Moses and all the scripture and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. A very important word there, all. I would like to suggest that Jesus says, when you study the Bible, study it comprehensively. Study the whole Bible. Don't take one passage only, but look at the entire picture. Sometimes people say, you are Old Testament Christians, we are New Testament Christians. Folks, I want to challenge all of us to be biblical Christians. The whole Bible. Sometimes there seems to be a contrast between faith versus works. But when you study the Bible comprehensively, it's a faith that works. That's what it is. Fascinating. There is no contradiction. So comprehensive is the fourth thing that comes out of it. What's number one, by the way? Number two, after Christ dependent, is what? Chronological. Number three? Study it carefully. Okay, careful. So be, that's number three. All of them are C's. Careful study. Number four? Comprehensive. Now look at number five. He expounded in all the scriptures. The scholars use the word canonical. The canon of the Bible. And this is a very important point I want to stress here. You say, oh, but that's common sense. No, it's not. Canonical. You must make sure that what you believe comes from the Bible. Now, you know what's interesting? Think about this for a moment. When Jesus joined those two disciples, Cleopas and his friend, as they were walking downcast those seven miles from Jerusalem down to Emmaus, could he not have done the following? Could he not have said, Gentlemen, look, it is I. He could have shown him physically who he was, right? Number two, he could have performed a miracle and they would have believed it was Jesus. What did Jesus do? He didn't go with the physical. He didn't go with the miraculous. You know why? It's a fact. The physical, the miraculous, because seeing is not believing. My Bible says that even the devil can appear as an angel of lights. Our safety, our foundation must be the scriptures. Not feeling, not impressions, unless the impressions are in full accord with the written word of God. Be very careful. So, Jesus explained to them in all the scriptures. What is number five? Canonical. Go back to the Bible, the canon of scripture. What did he explain? The things. Very interesting. I had not noticed it before. The things. I use the word contextual. Because here Jesus is going to the context of every issue he'd like to bring out to them. So we have to have a contextual approach to a comprehensive approach to the canon. There it is. Let's go through them. What is number one? It is Christ dependent. Number two, chronological. Number three, careful. Number four, comprehensive. Number five, 
canonical. And number six, contextual. Now here is something I want to really challenge you to do. Because sometimes there are so many misunderstandings of Scripture. Let me share with you a practical example. Just last week, I was reading a news report, and as I read, there was a sentence that had five words. Listen to the sentence. It said this, He struggled with his driver. Now when you hear that sentence, what do you think? Of a boss perhaps fighting with his chauffeur, trying to get him to drive the right place. Because the chauffeur wants to go his own way. He struggled with his driver. Until you read the context. The context. Tiger Woods, last week, Sunday, he won the Dubai Desert Classic. And it said he struggled with his driver. (laughs) Unless you know the context, you'll have the completely wrong idea. One sentence Outside of the context, you will conclude, has to do with a boss and his chauffeur. In context, it's got nothing to do with a boss. It's got to do with a golfer. He struggled with his driver. When you go to the Bible, you must make sure that things are in context. Are you ready for a little challenge? Hmm. Let's open our Bibles for an example. I'm going to go through this very quickly. Matthew chapter 5. We'll come back here, just a little tangent, to challenge you to think about things in context. Matthew 25, and by the way, I plead, I plead guilty right away before you even, before you think I'm stepping on your toes, I plead guilty for the misuse of this text myself. Okay? Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, and we'll come right back to Luke in a few minutes. Matthew 5 verse 17, it's a favorite text has been used when we're talking about faithfulness to the Decalogue, correct? And it says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And we've used that, saying that Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the Ten Commandments. But go to that same Sermon on the Mount, go to chapter 7, verse 12. I'm going to show you something very interesting. We've got to read the Bible in context. I'm going to challenge you to seriously look at that. Now, chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the what? The law and the prophets. Wait a minute. Matthew 22, verse 40. Let's keep going. This is all in the book of Matthew. We want to see how Matthew uses the term. Matthew 22, verse 40. What does Matthew mean when he says the law or the prophets? The law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. On these two commandments. Wait a minute. He's, he's talking about what's above there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, etc. Verse 37. Verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What is he talking about? Ah, go quickly to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You're beginning to see this is not, the, the law is not the Ten Commandments. Ah, the law and the prophets, you will see right here in John. The Jews themselves, when they use the phrase, the law and the prophets, what did they mean? John chapter 1 verse 45. They were just meeting Jesus at the beginning of his life. And look what Philip says. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses, Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Wait a minute. Does the Ten Commandments say anything about Jesus? No. The law or the prophets is a technical term, and you can find it all the way into the book of Romans. Yes, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 also. You can find it in the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verse 23, it says, in fact, let's go there. Just Paul did this. Acts chapter 28, verse 23. I want you to seriously, we must 
take the Bible in its canonical context. We must read it correctly. Ah, challenge to all of us. And remember, I said I plead guilty before I even showed you this. Okay, The Bible talks about this term. Chapter, Acts chapter 28, verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Guess what, folks? Go back to Matthew 5 in your mind. The law or the prophets. Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets. That's a phrase used by the Jews to refer to the entire Old Testament. Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. I came to fulfill because the whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. Yes. That's what it is. And so we'll go to our final point. But I, did, I, did I teach you something new? Incredible. That's what the Bible is saying. We've got to look at it in context. Now please, I do know, and you do know, that the Ten Commandments are found in the Old Testament. Okay? But when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill, I came to fulfill all the prophecies from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all of those that pointed forward to me, I have come to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Bible of Jesus' day. Fascinating. I want to challenge you to be faithful to the context itself. Read the scriptures in its context. See what the Bible is saying to you and to me. One more example about context. I had a medical student from this institution come to me just over two years ago. She had a difficult question to raise. She asked me about one text. And I began to email her back and forth. It took us some time after about two or three months. Her questions were so deep, and I praise God for, the, for you folk here who really ask deep, penetrating, probing questions. But I couldn't keep up this correspondence. I said, hang on, I'll try to give you a decent answer in a few months by, by April 2004. Well, <laughs> I got it done. I brought it with me right here. She was patient for about two years. I just gave her a copy today. Borrowed it back from her. But you know, she asked a question. And I have done some really fascinating, enjoyable study. Studying one word in context, and I'm not done yet, 54 pages so far. Now, by the way, I know when the scientists study, you know, studying the human genome, I know very little about that. But they dig deep, they dig deeper and deeper and deeper. They find more and more wonderful, incredible insights. Isn't that true? And that's how it is with the Word of God. You dig deep, you dig further, you find many, many beautiful things in God's law. I want to challenge you. Study the Bible in its context. And by the way, most important, put this one in parentheses, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 challenges us and says the only way you can understand spiritual things is to depend upon the Holy Spirit. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. This is part of that context. Point number six. We're still in number six. I wanted to spend a little extra time there. Make sure that your Bible study is in the proper context. That you don't take a word out of context or put onto the word what we think it should mean. But most important, we've got six steps. Now to the final step. Notice, he interpreted, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning whom? Himself. Point number seven. Every Bible study must be Christ-centered. It's Christ-dependent to begin with, and it is Christ-centered to end. Every Bible study, if it is not, then our Bible study, our digging into the Word, will become as dry as the hills of Gilboa. The Bible uses the term. 
It will not be life-giving, but it must be totally Christ-centered. We've got to know that the Bible focuses on Jesus. Look at another example of that. A few chapters later on, in the book of John, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus reiterates this thing. He tells us that there in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we saw it there. Now in John chapter 5, verse 39, and incidentally, in that same chapter of Luke, you find it the first, a few verses later as well. So he reiterates it. But here, let's look at Luke, uh, John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The whole Bible really, folks, points to Jesus Christ. And the challenge to us is to make sure that all of our Bible study is always focused upon Jesus. And if we do, we will be able to understand the same spirit that inspired the scriptures will help us to understand it. How do I know that? John chapter 16 verse 13 tells us that. So go to John chapter 16 verse 13. Because here, Jesus again, I love to go to the words of Jesus, Jesus guarantees basically the spirit who inspired it. We found that in the book of Peter, that letter that Peter wrote. The Holy Spirit moved men to write it. And here in John chapter 16 verse 13, Jesus says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into what? All truth. He will guide you into all truth. So we have that guarantee that as we dig into the Word, the Spirit will guide you. Did you know what? This is a sad statistic. Good, the good news first. Nine out of every ten Americans, guess what, has a family Bible at home. The good news. The bad news? Virtually no one ever reads it. That's the fact. People don't read the Word. Now, not, not, not too long ago, I had the privilege to counsel two people, both members of a Christian denomination, they had difficult problems. One of them had very, very tough interpersonal relational problems. The other one, dependency on drugs, cocaine to be specific. They were struggling in their own individual areas. And as I counseled with them and I visited with them and I talked with them, I asked them questions, I listened to them, and then I asked this question, how much time, because they were both members of a Christian church, how much time do you spend Reading the Word, feeding on God's Word, putting those promises in your mind, in your heart, learning how God wants you to live. And you know what their answer was? Zero. I don't read the Bible. I don't feed on the Word. The answer, the prognosis is bad, folks. If you don't feed on the Word, how are you going to ever expect to grow? You see the point? And so the prognosis for these two people I counsel is not good. They don't spend time in the Word. Jeremiah, in fact, the scripture you had for, read, for the scripture reading, Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16 says, Your word did I eat them after I found it. That's what he, you eat the word. There's another passage in Psalm 34 verse 8 that says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? He's good. So the Bible, you have to taste, you have to see it, you have to eat it, you have to enjoy it. The one I like is Psalm 119 verse 11 that says, your word have I hidden in my heart so that I may not sin against you. You've got to feed on the word so that you can survive. Unless you put God's word in your heart, you and I will not be able to survive. I've got to frankly tell you, 
I remember the year. I wish I could forget it. But I do remember the year when I myself, even though I had studied theology, the year I failed to read the Word of God. One of the worst years of my life. Not only did I fail, my failures affected others. They hurt others badly. And I know mostly my failure indeed hurt God. Very important, folks. If you want to find the key for that Bible code, we've been talking about communicating in code. I want to share with you a short phrase that I'd like you to memorize. Very simple, very straightforward. The key to the code is to read and heed. Don't worry about trying to figure everything out. Just spend time in the Word. Maybe you want to read it with me. You want to say it with me? The key to the code is to read and heed. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 for a practical illustration. Because here Jesus is talking about if you want to survive the storms of life, if you really are serious about living through difficult times, what should you do? In fact, he gives an illustration that when some of us were children, we learned about this. We sang about it even. This, it was put to music. Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of that Sermon on the Mount, that famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, notice the two things, hearing and doing. And we use the word reading and heeding. Same idea. Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came. Uh Aha, stop there. You think of Katrina, right? Okay, when the floods come, and of course he's talking about spiritual difficulties and all kinds of other catastrophes in our lives. When the floods come, okay, if you read and heed, then you are like the man who built his house on the rock. And he says, let's go back to that verse 25, and the rain descended and the floods came and what? And the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not what? It did not fall. Why? For it was founded on the rock. Sometimes we refer to Jesus as the rock of ages. How do we get to know Jesus? By spending time in His Word. Folks, repeat that with me again. The key to the code is to read and heed. That's very, very important. Because only as you spend time in God's Word, only as you spend time reading and heeding, listening and doing, will you find the power to overcome temptation. You will find the ability to cope with major disappointments and discouragements in life. You will find something to fill the emptiness of your heart during those days when you are lonely in despair. The Bible is critical. I want to challenge you to read it regularly. At the end of the session this afternoon, somebody came to me and said, tell me, what do you do? How do you really dig into the Word? What do you do? And I asked him, I said, you know what? It all depends on what your purpose is. If you simply want to stay spiritually healthy, or if you want to, you know, like, like getting out and doing regular exercise, because this gentleman is, is actually an adjunct professor here. I said, if you want to just stay healthy or if you want to train for a marathon. He said, oh, I just want to stay healthy. I said, okay, 
Because when you want to train for a marathon spiritually, you use different tools, you do different things. But if you simply want to stay spiritually healthy, then I recommend the following. I said to him, all you have to do, all you have to do is guess what? Spend 15 minutes per day. That's all. 15 minutes per day in reading the Word. If you do that, guess what? You will be able to read the entire Bible through from cover to cover. Now, I do recommend 30 minutes in case you know, uh, in case you forgot. The news in the evening is generally 6.30 to 7 o'clock. Half an hour of what I call the bad news, right? So I want to challenge you. If you can watch a half an hour of bad news, then spend a half hour with the good news every day. 15 minutes in reading the Bible, 15 minutes in serious reflection on how God loves you, how God loves me. My wife and I have been following this practice and the Lord has blessed us. Every year we try to read. And you know what we do? We read a different Bible translation every year. Now, I have a study Bible. I use the New King James Bible as my study Bible. But then I read a, a different version. And if I have a question, I go back to my study Bible. I say, is that really in my Bible? Because some of them are paraphrases. I go back. Read the Bible daily. Read it regularly. And you know, as I've been reading just in the last few days, in fact, last week, I ended reading the book of Leviticus. I'm now in the book of Numbers. And you know what's interesting? I was reminded as I read through Exodus, 40% of Exodus, Leviticus, almost the whole book of Leviticus, Numbers, I'm now at just finished Numbers chapter 7. Most of what I've read for the last oh, one and a half months deals with, guess what? The sanctuary. The first part of the Bible is saturated with the symbolism and the reality of the sanctuary. We're going to be talking further about that. But as I read it, I said, Whoa, this must be very important. Why would God put so much, to say nothing of later on, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Hebrews, found in, the, in other places in Revelation, the sanctuary is a vital teaching in Scripture. Why would God say so much about it if it was unessential or not important? So fascinating as I'm reading. So I want to challenge you. Spend time in the Word. And by the way, why the sanctuary? Remember when... Jesus came and John the baptizer saw him. John chapter 1 verse 29. He said, Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, John correctly understood that Jesus was the one who fulfilled the sanctuary services, who fulfilled the Lamb who was slain. That was Jesus. So all of this, all of this beautiful symbolism, all of it points forward to Jesus Christ. I want to end with a story. I met somebody three months ago. And as we became acquainted, I saw him again last month. He said, Ron, I've got to share with you my testimony. Because I said, I'd like to hear how God has blessed people in their lives. And so he wrote me his story. He grew up in a large Irish family, eight kids. He wrote the story, he said, and I'm quoting him, my family was, quote, dysfunctional. My father was an alcoholic. My mother was extremely controlling. He said, but I thought this was normal in a family. But it, the crisis through his life got worse and worse. And eventually in 1989, Chris, who's, who doesn't mind me sharing his story, he said, I can share this. Chris's brother, David, got murdered in New York City in 1989. The stress, the complications, all of these factors became so large that Chris came down with panic attacks. He looked for solutions. He went everywhere. He tried all kinds of medication. Nothing seemed to help. Eventually somebody suggested, well, he realized this wasn't just physical. He said, There's, there must be some mental issues here. So somebody suggested, go and take the 12-step program. And Chris shared with me, he said, it helped a little bit, not enough. 
until in 1996, Chris met a Christian, Bible-believing psychiatrist. And you know what this man said to him? Chris, go to the Bible. Read the Word of God. Here is the answer to your problems, to your panic attacks. I want to read to you what Chris says, because he wrote this, he shared it with me, and this is what he says in his own words. Immediately, when he was introduced to the Bible, when he started reading, he says, immediately the switches in my head began to go off as answers to my problems revealed themselves through the Holy Scriptures. He continues, several visits later to this Christian psychiatrist, I was on track to live a life free from fear. Yes, incredible. Two years later, after he had been visiting and studying the Bible, Chris and his wife Mary were baptized as Christians. They accepted Jesus Christ. The Bible was the answer to his problems. And I want to read you the rest, a few more statements of what Chris says. He says this, they began, got active in church. Chris says, the blessings began to flow beyond our wildest comprehension. And then he ends up with three words. Chris says, God is great. Where did he find it? By spending time, folks, in the Word of God. I want to end up with one final passage, a personal challenge to each one of us. I want to go to the second book of Peter. As I think of Chris's experience, second Peter chapter 3 verse 18, I would like to leave each one of you with this personal challenge as you leave here this evening. It's an important challenge, folks, because without feeding on the Word of God, we cannot grow as Christians. In fact, as you find that one, there was a beautiful statement I found somewhere that actually says that we grow by spending time in the Word, and here it corroborates that. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. You want answers to your problems? You want solutions to the issues of life? You want to be able to withstand temptation? You want the emptiness of your heart filled? The solution? Spend time in the written Word of God, and you will get to know the living Word, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank You. Thank you, thank you for inspiring holy men of old to write these words of life. Let us, Lord, go back to your written word for the answers to our dilemmas, to fill us when we are empty. May we go there, most importantly, to see the living word, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.